Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy inerrant word. Hear God's word to you this morning. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's son did as he had commanded them. Excuse me. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Mekar, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid 
and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Amen. So here we have it, brothers and sisters. Jacob, who was renamed Israel by God himself because he wrestled with God and he wrestled with men. And, and the Lord Jesus, in the form of, of the angel, said, and won and overcame. Now he had finally breathed his last. This is it. There's a song by a band called King's X, and I... It's chilling the way they put it, but here we have it. He, they say this, there is life and there is death. And the difference between either one is one single breath. I think that's a really profound statement. We're all one breath away from life or death. And here we have the Bible recording for us, Jacob's last gasp of air on this side of glory. But the good news for imperfect, for faltering, and yet believing Jacob is that upon closing his eyes in this life, he opened them in the presence of his people on the other side. As the Bible said, right, last week we saw he, he did what? He was gathered to his people. And that gives us so much comfort and peace to know when, when it's our loved ones who's a believing, who are believing loved ones, that they're truly in a better world with God Almighty and with all of God's people who went before us. But here's the thing. And I think as we read this, I, I always want to ru rush on to resurrection. But as we read this, I think we need to see this. There's still a profound sense of loss and a profound sense of grief that one feels upon the passing of one's loved one, whether it's a believing dad or a believing brother or sister or a believing uh, member of the church that you've been uh, had fellowship with and served with for many, many years. Um, yes, it is not a permanent loss, praise the Lord Jesus, but it's still a real one, isn't it? I mean, a lot of times we talk about um, the pain we feel, right? when we remember the loss of a loved one. But that pain is a good thing, isn't it? Because it means that they meant something to us and that they had an impact in our lives. And it's not a bad thing to feel pain in that sense. And it's a real loss, and I just want to take a couple seconds here to think about it because it really it profoundly impacted me more than I thought it would be because I'm such a selfish person in general. When my mom and dad passed, because what hit me, and, I am, and I'm, you'll see why I'm tying this in here, when it, what hit me was that chapter of my life is forever closed. No more going to them to reminisce about, hey, Dad, when I was only two, tell me that story again, how'd that happen? 
Or mom, remember when grandpa, grandma came over the boat, what was that exact situation? Guess what? Those, that chapter is what? Completely closed. No longer to be played again. No longer to be opened again in this life. And what the Bible tells us here about Joseph is that he was deeply moved by his father's passing. So yes, even as believers, we grieve. And we have to allow one another to do that in the church. And not try to cheer everybody up and stop them from this process. Look at right here. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. This is real life. And after that, we saw in the text he had his father embalmed the Egyptian way. It took 40 days. And here's the interesting thing. I even heard some uh, uh, kind of loud noises when we read this part. The Egyptians mourned for him over, for over two months. What an honor to have even the pagans mourning. Because of this great man who was what? In the world's eyes, a shepherd. And yet we know it was God's chosen to carry on the promise of the seed of the woman, of the Christ who would come. So we just read in the text, he sends word to Pharaoh after this, Joseph does, asking him for permission to go bury his father, telling him about the vow he made to bury his father with his people in Canaan. And here's the interesting thing, why I'm summarizing it. Pharaoh doesn't only let him go, he sends all of his officials to accompany him, and on top of that he brings chariots and horses to accompany Joseph and his family. And here's the issue. Moses wants us to see what a big to-do this was. This was a grand funeral procession. You know, we're driving down the street, we get annoyed because we see some cars, and they all have flags on top, or they have the blinkers uh, flashing, and that means, well, if you have an appointment, you're going to be a little late because you're behind a what? A funeral procession. And it's usually about a dozen cars or so, unless it's a dignitary, you know, and then you have all the limos and everything. But here, that's exactly what you have. You have the burial of a dignitary. And they stayed there for a week of mourning. So it wasn't enough that they mourned all that time in Egypt. Now they have a whole week of mourning. And it's interesting that Joseph kept his vow to bury his father with his people in the cave in Canaan. And then they all returned to Egypt. So you have this big crew of, of people, Egyptians and Hebrews, all coming back to Egypt. And it's at this point of the story that the great punchline, listen, of chapters 37 to 50 comes. You want the big takeaway, you want the big punchline, you want to know what the theme of verses 30 of chapters 37 to 50, which is a lot of chapters by the way. We're going to get it here. In verses 19 to 21, specifically that famous verse 20. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time together this morning on. And without question, it's a message that we need to hear again and again. It's a message that we need to apply to ourselves and to one another on a daily basis until the appointed time for us to take our last breath here on this side of glory and then be gathered with our people and with our Savior and with Almighty God who always keeps 
his promises. You know what's awesome? I want to say this before I jump into it because it just hit me now. It didn't hit me in my notes. Did you notice all the oaths that are being taken between men? Right? Jacob, uh, Joseph takes the oath that he's going to take his dad to Canaan and he keeps it. And then we're going to see later, Joseph says to his brothers, make an oath that when, when you all leave here, because God is going to deliver you out of Egypt, make sure you take me. But you know what's awesome? When God takes an oath, that's even more certain. And he made an oath in his name that he would deliver his people through his chosen one, Jesus. And it goes way back here. He swore by himself. Isn't that comforting? That was a freebie, by the way. All right, so here's what we're going to see this morning. Knowing that God uses even wrongs done to us to fulfill his saving purposes, we must forgive others from the heart. Whoa, didn't like that last turn, did you? <laughs> With me, I liked that first part. I was like, yeah, praise the Lord. And then that last turn, whoa. Now, wait a minute. Now you're meddling. I like when you preach. I say this about myself. But when you start meddling, then like my life has got to kind of change and get in line with the doctrine. And that's a little rut rut. So we're going to see here, knowing that God even uses the wrongs done to us to fulfill his saving purposes, we must forgive others from the heart. And this is some good medicine for each and every one of us here. I promise you that. We're going to see three things as we look at this. We're going to see we have a strange way of asking for forgiveness in this text. We have a shocking response to being grievously sinned against. And then we're going to see an incredible act of faith at the end of one's life. So those are three things. So let's take a look at the first one. A strange way for ask, of asking for forgiveness. And I also heard noises when we read this part of the text. Which is a good thing, by the way. I like some reaction. So look at verse 15. In case you didn't notice the whole intro, I, I um, summarized the verses up to 15. So I kind of tricked you. All right, verse 15, right there. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Now, I couldn't skip this part. You know, sometimes I want to uh, get to the main point and just kind of uh, go quickly. But I couldn't skip this point because I think it's super profound. The first thing we learn here in this text is how deeply we wound our own consciences and our own souls when we sin against God and others. We often think about the impact our sins have on others, right? But here in this text, we see these brothers who sinned against their brother Joseph, they're still living with the trauma of their own wicked deeds. You see that? They can't shake it. Think about this. They've been living with Joseph and his nuclear family, his wife and kids, for I think around 17 years. You could do the math for me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong about that. I'm not great about math. But I know it was quite a while that they had been living together. And everything's been fine. Joseph has already reassured them. If you turn back to chapter 45, we're not going to do it together, but you can turn back there. Joseph already told them this. He already said God meant it for good. And he told them, don't worry. But they still couldn't shake the guilt and fear. And to a degree, so what, what they were actually thinking of was this. Well, he only kept that word because Pop was still alive. 
you might remember it runs in the family. You remember what happened with Esau and Jacob? What did Esau say? As soon as dad's dead, you're a dead man. And here the brothers are like, that's what's going to happen. You know, because why? Nobody could be that gracious. This is too good to be true. You're, not, you're telling me, Joseph, you're just going to forgive us? Yeah, right. In what universe does that happen? And here's the thing. And the sad fact about life on this side of glory is this. It is a rare thing, isn't it? That we find true, deep, real, God-like Agape love forgiveness with no strings attached. It's too rare, even in the church. Thus, all the calls in the New Testament to forgive as we've been forgiven. And that's why I had, we had us pray the prayer Jesus taught us, which is a daily prayer, and which built right in asking for forgiveness is as we forgive those who sin against us. It's a two-way street. See, here's the th they, were, they were thinking, Joseph's just waiting for that moment so that he can fight fire with fire and give us the serious payback we deserve. And here's the interesting thing. You know how your conscience bothers you? I think sometimes we think people are like exact, going to do exactly the way we do. So Levi and Simeon, what they do when their daughter, when their sister, excuse me, was sinned against? They committed vengeance and revenge, and they wiped out the, all the men of a city and sinful anger and they thought well that's what's going to happen to us God's going to get us back now now's his chance so they hatched this cockamamie scheme I love it to get Joseph to forgive them and, and you know commentators you know it's interesting I have to read these things but um, they argue whether or not this really did come from Jacob or if it didn't come of course it didn't come from Jacob the text tells us that they were like, oh, man, uh, what's going to happen now? Joseph's going to take out his anger on us. Hey, I know what we'll do. <laughs> Let's tell him that dad, maybe if it comes from out of dad's mouth, then, then it'll, it'll carry more weight because he's not here anymore. Right? It's the whole point. They're afraid that now that he's gone. So this way, they put the words in Jacob's mouth. So that hoping that that would touch his heart that he would have a little bit of compassion because he would think that, oh, well, my dad's asking me to do this, so I'm going to have to do it. But here's the thing that I didn't see from any commentator. Usually that's dangerous, but in this case, I think I can prove it to you. I believe that in, in this confession of sin that they're saying comes from their father, there's actual, actually a real confession of sins from the brothers. Even though they put it in the, in the name of the father, I think they're still confessing. And I th I'll show you why I believe that. Because notice what they say. Forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. What's that an admission of? It's an admission that they mistreated their brother. And that what they did was not, um, well, it's a product of the way we were raised. Oh, well, I have this psychological condition. We see any of that here? We just see the flat-out confession, what we did was sinful. And it was wrong. Please forgive the things. Now, in the, the literal Hebrew, reads this way. I beg you, 
Please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for the evil they did to you. Now, another interesting thing about the Hebrew here, and and it really uh, hit me big time, is that the word to forgive here, excuse me, is to take or to take up. When they say forgive the sins, they say take up the sins of your servants. Now, one commentator, uh, John Goldingay, explains it this way. When we forgive someone, we take responsibility for the effect of their wrongdoing and its consequences, even though the responsibility really belongs to them. We refuse to let it have the effect that it logically should have. You have to understand what a big ask it is when we ask people to forgive us. And when we take response, we are saying, can you please take responsibility for what I did? That is what we're saying. Take what I deserve. And you bear it. And you live with it. And you live with the consequences of my behavior. Then they add that they have a confession of sin, but they also have a confession of faith. Notice how they refer to themselves. They call themselves who? The servants of the God of your father. (laughs) That's a clincher. I mean, that's really, they're really saying, look, we're not only the family, biological family, but we're the family of God, so. Mm. You know, I'm not not saying you have to or anything, but, you know, we are a Christian family. We serve the same God important thing to see. So that was definitely a strange way of asking for forgiveness. And it flows right into the next thing we see, the shocking response to being grievously sinned against, grievously sinned against. So when their message comes to Joseph, notice something. It says simply uh, two words here. Joseph wept. He cried. Now, for sure, we can only speculate as to exactly why Jesus wept, I mean, Jesus, uh, Joseph wept when he heard the message. But I certainly lean toward the idea when I look at the context that it pulled on his heartstrings and he was touched with the pangs of compassion and mercy when he heard their plea for mercy. Now it certainly agrees with how he was treating them up to this point as well as what he's about to tell them. If there's anything we've seen in the life of Joseph Joseph throughout our study together is this, and I don't think there's anybody in this room that would uh, contradict this. Joseph was a godly, compassionate man of God in whom the spirit of Christ shone forth brightly. Anybody deny that? We cannot. And I think what we see here is godly, Christ-like compassion, and he weeps at the pitiful situation of his brothers, his own brothers, and that they would throw themselves down and say, I am your slaves. Because, listen, here's the issue. They weren't just afraid that he was going to take it out on them. You know what they were afraid of? Because we see later in Joseph's response, they were afraid that their families would suffer, that they would not be taken care of, that they would not receive the same uh, um, great care that they had been getting when their father was alive. So they were fearing consequences for their family as well. But verse 19, Joseph said to them, here we get to the sweet spot of the text, 
Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I want you to see something, because it stuck out to me as well. He says to them, you intended to harm me. Now, why do I want to pause on that for a moment? Is because he didn't say this. Oh, shucks, it was no big deal. Oh, don't even think about it. No, come on. It was... He doesn't say that. He, he agrees with them. He says, yeah, you intended to harm me. You had bad intent. He agrees with their confession. But then he says this. He doesn't let them linger there, of course. He says this. But God. <laughs> Two of the most wonderful words that are strung together in the whole Bible. And we remember it in the New Testament, right? We remember Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? But God, who is what? Rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ while we were dead in, dead in sin. For it is by grace that you've been saved. I think it's so important to see same God here. Same God in, in Ephesians 2 here in Genesis 50. Praise his name. He is a merciful God. Now, one more little thing I got to give Golden Gay credit for. So one of the commentaries that I read, uh, one among many, and that's this. I was thinking when I read this text, here we have Romans 8.28. We all know what that is, right? For we know that God works together for the good, of all those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Same thing here, right? Eh, not exactly. Now, Romans 28 fits in this verse, but this verse is saying something way more specific. Because notice, you meant it in, uh, for evil, but God meant it for good for who? For Joseph? No. For the saving of many lives. In other words, it wasn't just that, you know, Joseph as somebody who loves God and is called according to his purpose, God takes all the bad things in Joseph's lives and turns them to good for Joseph. That's Romans 8.28. Can I get an amen? But we see here in Genesis 50, verse 21, what's going on is that God is working everything for good, all the bad things that happened to Joseph, in order to bless who? Others. So what we ha why do I point out that little, and thankfully uh, Golden Gay helped me see that, why do I point that out as an important thing? Because what we need to see here is Joseph's words and actions can only point to one person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because all the bad that was done to him turned out to the good of who? Of us, for others. So Joseph, if there's ever a place he's a type of Christ, it's right here. It's where his suffering benefits not just himself, and in Jesus' case, not himself at all, but others. So Joseph's actions and words point to the one redeemer, the one forgiver of men, Jesus the Christ. And I think that's important for us to see that. So real quick, Acts 4 
27 to 29. Acts 4, 27 to 29. The early church is praying. This is a big, huge prayer meeting. And they're praying in the Holy Spirit. Um, they're not praying just for their own um, prayer requests, like sometimes myself and we all do. We come into the prayer meeting with our grocery list. But notice how they're, notice how, yeah, right? You know what I'm saying? Now, this is how they're praying. They say this. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. Psst. Mic drop. God took the most heinous, malicious act of wicked men against his son, an act of hatred and murder, and turned it into the very salvation of men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, nation. And in this case, many of the very people who committed the crime. These are the people that had him nailed to the cross. And when Jesus looks at the crowd, he says something absolutely mind-boggling. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here's the interesting thing. That was God's plan all along. It wasn't like, oh, God shifted in his plan. Oh, we better do this now because they did that. But at the same time, listen, this is important. It doesn't make God responsible for the crime. The people who commit the crime are still responsible. If they don't repent, they will perish. Because, listen, here's the, here's the big takeaway. Come on, if you've you got to follow me on this. Their motivation for crucifying Christ came out of what? Hatred and murder. What was God's motivation for handing Jesus over to be crucified? The salvation of the world. Big difference. Big difference. Anybody ever wondered if motivation, what your motivation is for doing something matters? I think it does. I think it does. So way back here in Genesis 50, we have that. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for the good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Another quick thing here. Notice that Joseph leaves the justice to God. Because he says this, what am I in the place of God? Yo, he says, calm down, tranquilo. I'm not God. We leave to God justice. It's not my place. And so Derek Kidner, another great commentator, commentator says this, each sentence of his threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writing of one's wrongs to God, to see his providence and man's malice, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness but also with practical affection are attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. Why did I quote that? Because so often we think, what a great hero Joseph was. What an exception to the rule. And really, what is this? This is basic Christian living. This is supposed to be just normal for me and for you. This isn't for some superheroes who can pull it off somehow. It's for all of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And this is where the pay dirt comes in for us practically. 
Now, Joseph's attitude and demeanor and actions are a precursor to our normal Christian life. Now, how? Now, we have an even uh, deeper motivation in the sense that it's spelled out for us more in the New Testament. The Gospels opened up more clearly. And when we're told to forgive, for instance, in Colossians, how are we told to forgive? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You didn't want God to cast you into hell, did you? Which is what you deserved. Are you now going to hold out until that person sinks into hell? Or are you going to share the same mercy you received? Now, wait a minute, Pastor. I know I told you I was going to be meddling. Um, I had no problem forgiving in most cases, but in this particular situation, what this person did was inexcusable. I know I've quoted this a million times before, but I'm sorry, I've got to quote it again. C.S. Lewis. He's so clear. He's like this, you know, a little bit um, old, crotchety British guy, but he always has a way of saying things straightforward. He says this. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. So as soon as you try to throw that excuse up, say to yourself, did you have an excuse? No. What Joseph's brothers did was completely inexcusable, yet Joseph freely forgave. All right, pastor, you make a good point. I guess I'm going to have to forgive him. But here's the bigger thing. Now, I don't want to have nothing to do with him now. I'll forgive him. I'll forgive him, but don't, don't tell me i gotta, I got to spend any time with him anymore or be his friend or be his brother or have fe Christian fellowship with him. Really? Hmm. Forgive as Jesus forgave. Let's see. Is that how Jesus forgives you? All right, I'll forgive you, but I don't want to spend any time with you no more. I'm done with you. Out of my presence. Is that how Jesus forgives you? No more fellowship with him? No more tenderness? No more happy walking in the cool of the day with your God by faith? Notice what Joseph does, and this is actually the thing that jumped out in the text to me with, with, with great, it surprised me greatly. It says, Joseph reassures them and does what? Speaks kindly to them. So Joseph is the one who goes above and beyond and says, yo, brothers, come on. And he talks kindly, and he reassures them. And you know what else is interesting? He says, I will provide for your families. Not, I'll see to it that your families are taken care of. You know how we do that? He doesn't. He says, I myself. And then they live together as a family. And then we get to the end when Joseph's 110, and he's still with his family. He takes up their sin. That's what Joseph does here. And we take up each other's sins as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray that way from the heart. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now here's the thing I think we need to think about on a more regular basis, and I know I certainly do. Is there, more, is there a more incredible gift than the gift of forgiveness of sins? Is there? If you truly understand your wicked nature then you have to understand how incredible this wonderful gift that God gives in Christ, the forgiveness of sins. Now think about it this way. Your relationship with a holy God and your brothers and sisters who you sin against, your brothers and sisters in Christ who you sin against regularly is completely restored as if the sin never happened. 
You understand that? As if the relationship was never broken. It's to reverse the curse in the garden. Isn't that incredible? You know, I always love that line where the Lord came to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And that reminds me, I mean, it shows us that every day at a certain time, Adam and Eve walked with God. And they had a nice little walk in the garden. They said, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing. They just had a wonderful fellowship. And if you remember, after they partook of the tree they weren't supposed to, what does God say? Where are you? And then he says what? What have you done? What have you done? Do you realize out of the whole ball of wax, all the things we're called to do as Christians, everything we're called to do in the world, the real heart of it all is to have fellowship with God and one another? How we get that all messed up? And here, because of the forgiveness of sins, because of what Jesus, we know, did do and what he promised to do back here, we can be forgiven. Relationship can be restored with God and with one another. And here's the thing before we go to our last point and a very brief point. Nothing reflects the image and likeness of Jesus more clearly than when we forgive one another from the heart. There's no other picture of John 3.16 for the whole world to see as when we forgive one another. Because then that forgiveness up there becomes real down here. And we mirror to one another. Because don't you wonder sometimes, I don't know if God can really forgive this. Do you ever think that? When you do something you know is really bad, and you say, oh, I even premeditated this, how could God forgive me? Well, let me tell you what. If your wicked brother or sister in Christ can forgive you, you know a perfect and holy God can. Can I get an Amen. And that's why it's heinous when we don't forgive one another because we're given the, a wrong impression of who God is to one another. You want to talk about being gospel-centered, there it is. So such is the wondrous gift of forgiveness of sins and that, <laughs> and that how horrible it has to be to be the devil and his, his uh, minions because even the worst that they do, God uses for our good. Just saying all right, last thing, and it's very brief. We see here, because it's, it's come up again and again in Genesis, we see an incredible act of faith. Look at beginning in verse uh, 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children and also the children of Makar, son of Manasseh, were placed at, his, at birth on Joseph's knees. And then Joseph says this to his brothers. I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath, on oath, remember we mentioned that earlier, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, they were placed he was, um, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, some commentators make a comment that sure, certainly sounds right, but it's not completely right, and that's this. Notice Genesis starts with life, God creating life, the book of Genesis, and it ends with death, someone in a coffin. Right? Interesting. But here's the thing. 
doesn't actually end there, does it? Because what does Joseph say before he dies? Joseph has something we call faith. And Joseph knows it ain't over when people say it's over. It ain't over when I'm cold, my body's cold in that tomb. He says, when God delivers you, because I'm telling you, he made it on oath, he's going to do it. When he takes you out, maybe hundreds of years later, but when he takes you out, make sure you got my bones with you. Because I don't want to stay here, number among the uncircumcised. I want to be with God's people, numbered among God's elect, numbered among the inheritance of those who trust in the seed of Abraham the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder this morning as I come to a close, if you've truly acknowledged your sins, if you've confessed them clean, like we just saw, even though the brothers did it in the mouth of Jacob, uh, yeah, Jacob, I wonder if you've done it before the Lord. And if you've turned away from them and thrown yourself fully on the mercy of God, Lord, have mercy on me, what? A sinner. If you have not done that, listen, there's no try in this case. There's do or don't do. And the Lord calls us this morning if we are still on the fence, if we're, well, I'm trying to do, no, there's no try. Fall on your face and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And receive the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace and the salvation that we see a God went to great lengths to accomplish for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, truly, there's so much in your word here, so much to feast on, so much that we could eat forever and ever and such a long time and still get so much out of. And Father, we pray... We know that it's impossible in and of ourselves to forgive like that. And we know we need your Holy Spirit. We know we need the gift of a strong faith. Um, and we thank you, Lord, that even the little faith we have, as long as it's put in Jesus, can do amazing things. And so especially help us to be forgivers, Lord, just as you forgave us so that people could see and taste how good and how real you are and that your gospel truly does transform lives and families and communities. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.